difficile. Amen. I can think of no better way to transition into a time of study of God's word than just saying the name of Jesus over and over again. Uh, so I want to welcome you and say good morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. That's where we're going to be together in just a minute. Uh, Chris made a comment earlier about um, a group of us that <coughs> kicked off the uh, 2019 Men on Fire uh, monthly gathering of our, of our men in our church yesterday and toured several barbecue locations uh, around our area. So if you notice <coughs> either some men moving a little slowly this morning, uh, that's probably part of the reason. Or if a rush of people come forward after this sermon to confess the sin of gluttony, uh, that might also be possible. So we had a great time and uh, and really appreciate James Henderson and all the coordination and work he put into that. It was a, it was a great thing. Uh, I want to start this morning before our sermon by um, acknowledging, recognizing uh, Stuart McGregor. Stuart's been uh, with us and gathering with us for uh, several months, but wants to be officially recognized as a part of this church family. Stuart, will you show people where you are right there? Let's give him a hand. Stuart works for the uh, Forney Economic Development Corporation, so if you're really happy about the growth in Forney, go talk to Stuart. If you're not really happy about it, don't go talk to Stuart. Uh, he, he's uh, he's a, been a great addition to our church family already and has jumped in uh, and gotten to know a lot of you already. And so I want to I want to ask Stuart if you would stand, and if you're near him or want to go near him, we're going to pray over him this morning as we start. We're going to ask several of you to surround him. If everybody else would stand, that'd be great as well, and uh, we'll start our time together that way. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful today. Uh, we, we are encouraged deeply by this, the truth of these words uh, that we want our lives also to reflect, that we want you to be at the center of it all, of our life, of our church, of our world, God. We want Christ to be the center. We want Christ to be lifted high. And we pray this morning that, uh, that Christ's name has been exalted through our, uh, the praise that's come off of our lips and from our hearts. And God, this morning we ask your blessing uh, to be upon Stuart. We're so grateful that he has uh, come and wants to be uh, a part of this church family and journey with us. We pray your blessing upon him and the work that he's doing, uh, impacting the city of Forney and this county and um, making a difference in lots of lives there. Uh, we look forward to the ways that you'll use him here as a part of this church uh, to encourage each of us, and uh, we pray that we'll be an encouragement to him as well. As we study together this morning, we ask that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you want us to see and hear so that our lives can be changed, so that our hearts can be transformed and we can live in the way that you want us to live. We pray all this the all-powerful name of Jesus Christ and the church said, amen. Thanks so much. <clears throat> well, as you're uh, making your way back to your seat and finding Luke chapter 4, I just want to mention, as I was preparing for last week's sermon, um, I didn't realize at the time how much shorter it apparently was than all the other sermons I preached. I received more comments in the last week about how short last week's sermon was uh, from a number of, I lost count of how many people commented about how, how short last week's sermon was. So I've not worn my watch today, 
And so who knows? Buckle up. It could be a really long sermon. Uh, that was an accident, but I thought it was kind of funny in light of all the comments I got uh, about last week's sermon. So this, this morning, I want to just start uh, by reminding you we, we're in a new series uh, that we started last Sunday we're calling Meet Jesus, where we're looking again at stories in the life of Christ uh, from the beginning of specifically Luke over the next several weeks. We looked in John chapter 2 last week. Uh, as we start, though, this morning, we're actually going to go back to the Old Testament and start there, not actually turning there, but just imagining as the Old Testament ends, uh, it ends with this promise that there will be a Messiah. The prophets talk about it. They anticipate that this day is going to happen. But when you, when you close the last page of the, of the Old Testament, that Messiah has not arrived yet. And as and we turn the page to, from Malachi to the New Testament, we're left wondering, if you don't already know the end of the story, like what will happen? Will this Messiah actually show up? Will he arrive on the earth? Where is the promised Messiah that Israel has been waiting for all of these many years? And then when you turn to Matthew, we meet Jesus there in Matthew's genealogy as he begins to tell his story. And what many of you already know is that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John their, their position there at the beginning of the New Testament on purpose for a reason, because they're answering this question, right? Is the Messiah that was promised back then going to show up? And so the New Testament's answer is, yes, he has arrived. But the interesting thing is that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, they all introduce the world to Jesus in a different way. They all have their own unique way of telling this story about Jesus. But they're doing, they have a different way because they're writing with a purpose. They have a plan in mind. They're not just simply recording facts. Maybe you've never considered why some of the stories in the, in the Gospels are the same and why some stories only appear in certain places. And that's because they're all telling a story and they all have an audience, an original audience, and we are not that audience. We are not their originally intended audience. I think many times that we, we forget this, that they're not just simply recording stories without thought or reflection, but they're telling a story and they're telling it on purpose. They're telling it in a specific way with a specific direction. And at this point in history, for us to read the Bible really is like reading someone else's mail. We're kind of getting to look over someone's shoulder and, and examine what they were writing, what they were intending, what they were telling. And these writers are certainly telling a story. This is why each writer, again, tells some of the same stories, but also has some things that are unique because they're making decisions and they're telling the story and introducing us to Jesus in a unique way. And that, that's really what their purpose is, is to introduce us to Jesus. Each of them introduced Jesus in a different way and from a different perspective. For example, Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's introduction of Jesus it, it has Jesus sort of reissuing uh, the Torah, the law, through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew is unique in that he gives this long, detailed account of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke gives a shorter version of the same sermon, but it's not nearly as elaborate as Matthew's. This is why Jesus says in, in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, because he's teaching a new law. And part of Matthew's point is that that, that new law has arrived in Christ. Mark introduces us to Jesus and uh, Jesus is, the first story he tells is Jesus casting out a demon in the synagogue in Capernaum. This power of darkness is being cast out into the world. Mark has Jesus performing uh, more 
demon, possess, you know, demon exorcisms and miracles and that kind of thing than the other writers do. John, in the story that we looked at last week in John 2, introduces us to Jesus at a wedding in Cana of Galilee and has Jesus turning, this tells us about Jesus turning this water into wine. So each story is unique, and they tell the story, they introduce us to Jesus in a different way. And so when we arrive in Luke this morning, what we're going to encounter is Jesus' introduction from Luke, uh, first with a test in the wilderness, and then with an announcement that the Lord's favor, the Lord's favor has arrived. And that day has come. This is why, again, all of the events happened, but they're all recorded in a different way. So we're on this journey, meeting Jesus over the next several weeks, getting reintroduced to Jesus, and we're doing that, again, by looking at these stories. And so I want to invite you again to look with me in in Luke 4, and I'm going to begin um, in verse 1 and read. Really, our sermon text is going to be 14 through 21, but I want to give us some context for where we're going to be. Luke says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has, been, it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, the devil said, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is written, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And Jesus began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So according to the Jewish custom, as was his practice, Luke says, Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath worshiping God as any good Jew would have been on that day. And I think to understand this scene, we must have a better idea of what would have been taking place in the synagogue, kind of the order that things would have happened. To, to have, it would have gone something like this, like to have a gathering, you would have had, they would have had to have at least 10 men present on that day. And the congregation would have recited the Shema, which is the Jewish confession of faith recorded in Deuteronomy 6. 
4 through 9 that says this. You're familiar with it already probably. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would have all said this out loud together, reciting it as a profession of their faith. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And after they would have recited the Shema together, they would have shared in a time of prayer. And then there would have been a reading from God's law, the Torah, or the fir- one of the first five books of the Old Testament. And after the reading, there would have been a time that we would think of as like a sermon where people would comment, they would discuss, someone would stand up and discuss the texts that were read and they would try to tie them together in some way. And most people believe that it's during this time, this portion of the, the, what we would think of as like a worship service, when Jesus would have stood up to read from this scroll in Isaiah. And he stands up to speak and Luke says that he found this passage in Isaiah. Like he was sort of looking for it, like he was making a point. And his message that comes from this book of Isaiah is sort of this mashup. You may have a footnote in your Bible of a couple. It's kind of a a conglomeration of several different passages from Isaiah 61 and 58. But it's here that I, I want us to remember that Luke is telling a story. That's why I started the way that I did, that Luke is writing his gospel to make a point. And, and I, want, I want us to remember that the shadow of the story that's right before this story is still being cast over this synagogue scene that's playing out. The temptation story sort of flexes its muscles as a reminder in the background, like that this just happened, right? Jesus has just spent 40 days out in the wilderness, and it offers, in the wilderness, Jesus is offered the, the opportunity, he's really, he's really tempted with three things. The opportunity to be relevant, which is the bread temptation. The opportunity to be powerful, which is the kingdom temptation. And the opportunity to be spectacular, which is to throw himself off the temple. And I'm getting these words, relevance, power, and spectacular from Henry Nouwen, who wrote a book on the temptation story called The Selfless Way of Christ. And and what he says, Nouwen suggests that there are really three temptations that Jesus was tempted with in the wilderness, and they're the same temptations that you and I face, and that most all temptations can fall under one of these three categories. The temptation to be relevant. In other words, the temptation to make productivity the basis of your life. The temptation to make productivity the basis of your life. That the more you create, the more you work, the more you perform, the more you produce, then the more valuable you are and the more important that you are. It's the temptation to be noticed, to be recognized, to be relevant. And everybody wants to stay relevant. Nobody wants to be forgotten. And so if you just turn these stones into bread, Jesus, everybody will know that you are who you say you are. The temptation to be powerful. The temptation of power takes on many forms in our day. It takes on the form of money, connections, recognition, fame, intellectual abilities, skills. What each of these are, if you think about it, are a sense. They, they give you and I a sense that we have some kind of security, some kind of control. 
and they sort of strengthen our illusion that our life is our own. Like the more money and connections and resources that I can gather and collect, the more stuff that I have, then somehow I'm okay, right? And the temptation to be spectacular, which is really similar to the temptation to be relevant, but it's different in its own way. The temptation to be spectacular it somehow acknowledges that your work, that your job as a student, that your life, your family are all valuable in as much as they are visible and on display for everyone to see. And I want to read a long quote from now and that'll be on the slides. What, what he says about these temptations that I think is really important as we consider what Luke's point is in, in this chapter here. Luke now says this, it is important to realize that our hunger for the spectacular, like our desire to be relevant, has very much to do with our search for selfhood. To be a person and to be seen, praised, liked, and accepted have become nearly the same for many. Who am I when nobody pays attention, says thanks, or recognizes my work? The hunger for human acceptance is like a bottomless barrel. It can never be filled. Jesus responded to the tempter, you must not put the Lord your God to the test. Indeed, the search for the spectacular glitter is an expression. When we search for that, it's an expression of doubt. Doubt that God's complete and un unconditional acceptance of us is real. And indeed, it is indeed putting God to the test. When we search for that, we're essentially saying to God, I am not sure, God, that you really care, that you really love me, that you really consider me worthwhile. I will give you a chance to show it by soothing my inner fears with human praise and by alleviating my sense of worthlessness by human applause. Our true challenge, church, is this, to return to the center, to the heart, and to find there the gentle voice that speaks to us and affirms us in a way that no human voice ever could. This hunger, Nowen says, is never satisfied. And Satan knows that. And he thinks that he can trick Jesus into buying into it and giving into one of these temptations. So Satan's always working, right? He's still, we feel this reality in our lives. That he's always working on us. That voice is always there. And what he does through temptation, think about this in your own life, is try and convince us that we do not belong to God and that our needs cannot be met by God completely. So we try to get those needs met in a lot of different ways. We, so that when, and when Satan does that, what it's happening is it's, we actually start to believe, right? We start to feel the need to act on our own, to take care of our own interests, to look after ourselves and as a result, we grasp for things to meet our needs that will never fulfill or meet our needs. So that temptation story is casting its shadow. It's over this synagogue scene in Nazareth. And after this temptation scene, Luke tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. You know why I think that he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit? I think it's because he's just come out of the wilderness, right? Out in the wilderness, what happened was that Jesus put Satan on notice. By resisting these temptations, he put Satan on notice. What he was saying is, 
Those things will not work anymore. Luke is doing more than just telling you that Jesus resisted the temptation, though he's telling us that. And that's important. As wonderful as that is, that is not the only thing that Luke is telling us. Luke wants us to see the bigger thing that is going on here. And he gives us, I think, really the theme of his gospel, and that is that God's favor has arrived. The time for God's favor has arrived. It's being proclaimed, Luke says, right before your eyes. The overthrow of Satan's reign and Satan's kingdom is happening, and God's favor is coming to rest upon all people. When you put these two stories side by side, I think that's what we, we see. That Satan realizes in this moment that, that something else is happening. He's being put on notice. He's, he's being told that the end of his reign is coming and has come. Among those people who will receive God's favor, Luke says, are the poor to whom good news will be proclaimed. Why the poor? Because God cares for the marginalized. God cares for the poor. And God cares for those on the outside. And that's really one of Luke's main points throughout his entire gospel. Luke is has Jesus constantly hanging out with Samaritans, people who would have been on the margins, treating the outsiders with respect. But it's also because if you're poor, good news can't come often enough. Christ has come into the world, and that is good news for the poor. But it is also freedom for prisoners. It is recovery of sight for the blind. It's setting those who are oppressed free. And I want us to, to, to notice that there is a literal application of this. Like, I think that Jesus actually is coming to proclaim news, good news to people who are literally poor. And Jesus is coming to proclaim freedom for those that are actually in prison. And Jesus who is, is coming to act, give actual blind people, you know, sight and oppressed people freedom. But God's favor isn't just that. It is also for those, it's, it's certainly for those who are literally and physically in those conditions, in those states. But God's favor is also for those that are spiritually poor, spiritually in prison, spiritually blind, and spiritually oppressed. These statements, I think, are a reference that, as Jesus reads from the, the prophet Isaiah, they're a reference to the Old Testament idea of Jubilee that the book of Leviticus talks about. Jubilee imagines this day where it's a new start for the kingdom, the nation of Israel. The books are wiped clean. Slaves are set free. Debts are canceled. A day when prisoners are freed and enemies are forgiven. When those on the margins of society are now given and afforded an opportunity. So Luke says, now is the time of God's favor. It has come into the world. Yes, God can provide freedom for actual prisoners, but even more, God is providing freedom for those that are in spiritual shackles too. Yes, forgiveness of enemies happened then, but what Christ makes possible is also forgiveness for our enemies, for your enemies. Yes, Jesus can heal the blind, but even more, Jesus can give spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind. This whole scene of, what, of, of what's playing out here is, is uh, actually it's a picture of what Christ provides to the world in salvation. Through the grace that Jesus offers the world, a fresh start is given to all people. To you, a fresh start is given. To me, a fresh start is given. The true, truly, the favor of the Lord 
has come to rest on all people. The temptation of, of Satan worked. This, this is why I think Satan attempted to do what he attempted to do with Jesus in the wilderness. Because prior to Jesus, it had always worked on everyone else. And that's the reason that I believe that that day in the wilderness, when Jesus resisted that final and third temptation, I think it was putting Satan on notice. I imagine Satan sort of shaking in his boots or his sandals, whatever, you know, whatever that was like. But, but being like acknowledging like something is different, right? A new king has come into the world. Every person before Jesus had not been able to resist the temptations that Satan had thrown out their way. Kings had come and fallen for the temptation of relevance and power and the temptation to be spectacular. And even the greatest kings fell short. King David, if you want to lift him up as the example, fell short. But now a king has arrived, Luke tells us, that is greater than all of those kings. So that when Jesus stands up, and quotes Isaiah, he is able to do so as one with authority because he's come from the wilderness and he resisted the temptation that, that he was offered there. So how does Jesus end this synagogue sermon? He rolls up the scroll and he hands it to the attendant and he sits down. Like, what do you do when you've just announced the greatest news ever? You you drop the mic, right? That's Jesus' ultimate mic drop. Today, he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And church, what I want us to hear and see is that part of what happened on that day is that Jesus declared that Satan's reign was up. Satan's rule over your life was over. And the reason that we know that it's because the Bible says that it's true. In Romans, Paul writes about it. In Ephesians, Paul writes about it. That the same power, the same spirit that was at work in Jesus lives in you. So that when you wake up in the morning and you think, <clears throat> I cannot resist the pressure of the evil one, God's word to you is the year of the Lord's favor has come to rest on your life. And the same power that is at work in Christ is now at work in you. And the enemy's time is up in the world, and the enemy's time is up in your life. His, his power over you has been put on notice. His ability to influence you and your life has been weakened through the power of Christ. Jesus resisted the temptations, and through Christ we have the same access to fight temptations, to resist temptations that Satan uses in our lives. God's favor, church, did not just get announced one time 2,000 years ago when Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth. God's favor over you is still present. God says this morning to you and me, to the world, I really care about you. I really love you. I really consider you worthwhile because the enemy will tell you God doesn't really love you. That thing that happened, he hasn't really forget, forgotten, right? And, and Jesus announces that that is not true. The, the enemy's hold is not as strong as we sometimes allow it to be. And so our prayer is God make the spirit that's at work in us greater than the evil one that is at work in the world. May we hear God's voice that says, I really care about you. I really 
love you. I really consider you worthwhile. Today, may we know that this scripture has been fulfilled in our hearing too. And as we meet Jesus again today, may we believe that he brings good news. May we believe that he brings sight, spiritual sight for our blindness. May we believe that he brings freedom. And may we believe that Jesus brings release from Satan's oppressive hand. Satan's time is up and the year of the Lord's favor has arrived. And we say to that, amen and praise God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> this morning, God, we confess that uh, our hearts are willing, but our flesh is weak, that we want to believe what we've just read and heard, that your favor has come to rest, and that Satan's power over us and the world is not what it used to be, and yet we find it difficult to believe. And I pray this morning, God, that you will open our hearts and our, our eyes and our minds to help us receive the love that you have for us. That we'll hear your voice that says, I really care about you, I really love you, and I really consider you worthwhile. God, may Christ's voice in our hearts and minds be louder than the voice of the enemy. I pray that you will help us as we struggle with our own lives, as we live our own lives, that we'll, we'll be willing to receive these words from Christ. And we'll know that, that your favor rests not, not only back that day in that synagogue in Nazareth, but your favor still rests on us and on the world. God, we're grateful for that. To that we say thank you and we praise your name. We pray this morning through the name of Christ who makes all this possible. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? <clears throat> this morning, uh, we want to provide a time, as we do each Sunday, to respond to God in whatever way you may need to respond. It may be that you hear these words and you think, I still can't really believe, and you want to have some people pray for you, we'd love to do that. I'll be down here. There'll be a shepherd in the back. You can encourage to find somebody around you. Uh, maybe that you know of something going on in somebody's life that's sitting near you or sitting across the room from you. Uh, you want to go and find them and encourage them. However, we need to respond to God. Let's do that while we sing this song. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give.